0: Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride right Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of regional LGBTIQA plus living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jaja Wurrung land and we respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This project has been made possible with the financial assistance of Melbourne Pride and with the support of the Mount Alexander LGBTIQA plus steering group
1: the Mount Alexander Shire Council, and Main FM 94.9. Uh, my name is Lynn. I'm um, 78 years old, and I was born in the Royal Women's Hospital in Carlton um, in the middle of the Second World War. Um, so in those early days, my mother and my grandmother and I um, lived in a little flat, in Melbourne while my father and my grandfather were away at the war. Uh, my aunt and uncle and their, their children, my cousins, lived in Castlemaine. So we used to come up as kids. Uh, we'd visit Castlemaine and they'd come down to us. So I, I, I knew Castlemaine to be a nice place. My aunt used to teach the tech school here um, and she was also a musician uh, as well as was my father. And they were very close. So, yes, we had connections with Castlemaine. About uh, 25 years ago or so, we bought a little bush block uh, at Walmer, about 10 minutes out of town. And so we were up there nearly every weekend and on holidays, etc. And we'd been going to the Castlemaine Festival for years. Um, so we just knew Castlemaine very well. And um, when we retired, we thought, it would be a nice place to sort of spend the rest of our time in. So that's how we got to Castlemaine. It was a place we knew very well and liked a lot. But I I mainly grew up in Cobden, which is a very small town of about 2,000 people in the Western District. And um, that's where I went to school, um, for primary school. And then I took the bus into Camperdown, which is about 10 minutes' drive away for my secondary school at Camperdown High. And then I went to Melbourne University, which was a real shock for me because we lived in a very small town and our city was Geelong, really. We very rarely went to Melbourne. Um, I went to Melbourne twice for the Olympic Games in 1956 and a couple of times on, on school trips, but just a day trip on the train. So going to Melbourne to go to university, as I say, was was a great shock um, because I'd never been in that in a big city by myself before. I didn't know how to use a tram and I didn't really know my way around. But fortunately, I would won a bursary to ha- um, to go to the uh, University Women's College, which was a residential college for women who particularly focused on um, on housing women students who'd come from the country. So that was a very secure sort of place for me there. And uh, I'd always wanted to be a doctor, so I studied medicine at Melbourne University. I'll go back just a little bit, because when I was um, in primary school, in fact I was about eight years old, my mother and my grandmother took me to one of the uh, bigger local towns, and as I was standing there with them in the street, they were going shopping, they said something about a couple of women who ran a particular business there, and they said, uh, just in the conversation that they were lesbians. And I said to my mother, "What's a lesbian?" And she said to me, and this is very crucial because it sort of it, it was laid the sort of foundation to sort of how I saw myself later on. And she said, oh, lesbians are women who love other women." Like, there was nothing wrong with that. So I went home that day and I looked in the mirror and said, I'm a lesbian. Uh, however, when I got to, to Melbourne, I, I had never met, at least I thought that was the case, any other lesbians. And when I got to Melbourne, I still didn't meet any, not for years. In fact, I'd almost finished my medical degree before I met anyone who I even thought might be a lesbian so when the women's liberation movement came along um, in the early 70s and i felt that i was a feminist anyway because my mother was pretty much a feminist although she wouldn't have called herself that Uh, i heard that there were things called consciousness raising groups so um, i thought i'd like to go to one of those a group of women talking together that would be fun um, and the, the social worker in the ward I was working in, um, at a major Melbourne public hospital, where I was work, working as a resident, uh, said to me, oh, you might be interested. There's a, there's a group called the Women's Health Collective. And I thought, yeah, that sounds right up my alley, really. So I went off to the Women's Health Collective, which had just set up in Collingwood in Johnson Street, and found it was a, a group of women, some of whom were actually lesbians and identified as such, and others were, were straight women. But we were a collective who'd come together. There were at least four doctors involved, some nurses, dietitian, uh, occupational therapist... And a number of other women who were just interested in women's health. So that was kind of my introduction to actually meeting women who identified primarily as as lesbians, but who were also feminists. Um, And from there, I also got involved in uh, Women Against Rape, which was the Rape Crisis Centre. And as part of the Women's Health Collective, I also saw uh, lots of women brought in by workers from women's refuges who'd suffered from, uh, from family violence. Uh, that was sort of my introduction to to the women's liberation movement, and that's where I felt most at home. And through that, over the years, a number of groups formed at the Women's Centre in the Mel- in Melbourne. And one of the major ones that I was involved in was the Lesbian Action Group. And we had, you know, a uh, hundred, sometimes two hundred women coming to our events, um, but there was a sort of core group, probably about of about sixty to eighty. Uh, and a subgroup of that formed, and I was a founding member of that, and that was the Lesbian Health Group. And as far as I'm aware, it was the, um, the first specifically lesbian women's health group in Australia. It um, may not be true. You can never be sure to say the first, but as far as I'm aware, that was the first. And there were four of us in the sort of core collective, and uh, we ran Lesbian Health Days, um, and hundreds of women came through then for the Lesbian Health Days. And one of our major tasks was to actually provide pap smears um, for lesbians who um, who were a group who uh, were not very good at getting pap smears, as you can probably imagine in those days. So we'd be doing, in each of those days, we'd do probably about 100 pap smears a day. 1967 was the year of the referendum that was passed by 97% of the Australian population, uh, which was a real rarity and still is to pass a referendum by that amount. And that gave Indigenous people the right to be counted in the census and to have other certain rights. In other words, for the Commonwealth to be able to make legislation and to provide particular funding for Aboriginal services. So that was a crucial year. So around those years, 67, 68, the first sorts of, of uh, women's liberation groups and gay liberation groups were forming. There was the emergence of a whole lot of, 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 of rights movements um, around the world, not just in Australia, um, Europe, the UK, the US all had had rights movements starting at that time. In terms of the sort of lesbian feminists, a lot of them, including myself, had become earlier involved in the what was the, the initial stages of the gay liberation movement. There were some concerns still that women were not readily accepted into some parts of the gay liberation movement. Not all parts, but some. And that led to a number of us sort of being more attracted to the women's movement and setting up lesbian only groups there but whenever there was a gay liberation march we'd all be there we also went to the to the gay liberation conferences i think they were called um, homosexual conferences there were annual homosexual conferences in in rotating around each of the major cities and they often had Women's conferences on at the same time. So by 1975, uh, which was Women International Women's Year, um, there were a whole lot of conferences going on at the same time. So there was ample funding for uh, for lesbian conferences, for women in politics, women in socialism, women in Marxism, women in the environment, women in madness, and we we're at conferences and, and meetings and get-togethers almost the whole uh, the you know, at least one a month for the whole year. It was a very exciting time. In 1978, I went on a trip to the US. One of the major reasons was not to have a holiday tour or to be a tourist, but we had been in contact with a whole range of groups in the US, feminist groups, working around issues of family violence, women's health, uh, rape and sexual uh, sexual abuse. And so we made contact with them and arranged to visit them in various states across the US. And while we were in San Francisco, they were debating what was known as the Briggs Initiative. And the Briggs Initiative, in California, citizens can raise a question for referendum. And the Briggs Initiative was raised by someone called Briggs. And it was... An initiative to be put to the vote to ban all homosexuals from working in the health welfare and education sectors and that was a huge issue and on uh, I think it was June the 6th of national day to commemorate the uprising in New York by by gay, gay men and lesbians um, which started off the gay liberation movement in the US there was a march and 250,000 people Marched against the Briggs Initiative, um, and we were addressed by a number of very well-known American lesbians and 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 gay men, including Harvey Milk. And the Briggs Initiative, in fact, f- obviously failed because it was not supported by the general public in California at all, apart from a couple of of counties. Uh, but in a number of states, they did pass. That sort of regulation or in, in their, uh, their state congresses, um, to ban lesbians and gay men. At that stage, the trans community weren't even mentioned. Or it was like they, they didn't exist. Although, of course, they did exist because when I worked in hospital as a registrar in a, in a psychiatry unit, they had begun to, to take in trans women for, for surgery. To be eligible for that, you had to have been living as a woman for Two years um, to be assessed on a regular basis as being totally mentally fit and pass a whole lot of various tests, and then you could have the surgery. But the total contradiction in that, of course, was that they did it on a Sunday, the surgery, so that there were there were hardly anyone around to notice that this was happening, and and then the patients would be transferred for their post-operative care into the psychiatry ward. So. The contradiction in that view is very obvious to me anyway so um, but during those time I didn't ever come across any any trans men at all and I think at that time nobody believed that was actually um, a possibility at all. Later on, when I did a locum in the psychiatry unit at another hospital uh, about 1980, there still hadn't been I still hadn't come across any um, any trans men at all. As a doctor, uh, when I started practicing I did two years as a junior resident in which I did a whole whole range of different rotations. You did a country rotation, you did a rotation in an emergency department um, and I did a rotation in the intensive care unit as well as other sort of medical rotations. And I decided after having done a term in the psychiatry unit as a resident that I'd like to do psychiatry. So I spent the next four years as a psychiatry resident. And after two years at this major public hospital, what normally happens is that you sit the first part of your postgraduate qualification in in psychiatry, which I did and passed. And then you do another two years and then sit the final part and you're a qualified psychiatrist. But at the end of, two, of the two years, normally what you do at the end of each year, you're on a sort of annual contract. But if you're going along um, and uh, working to do a postgraduate course, unless you do something truly terrible, you just keep going from year to year until you do your exams and you finish. But in this case, the consultants in the psychiatry unit said to me, we don't want you for the next year. And one of them actually slipped up and said, we're looking at getting a man. I said, well, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. Why, why don't you want to continue to employ me? Well, we don't have to tell you that, they said. And I thought, this is very suspicious because they'd never said anything about my work. In fact, it was completely the opposite. They were very pleased. And the hospital itself was very pleased. But no, they said no. They just want me to leave for some completely other reason. I had some ideas about what it might be, but it wasn't until some years later that someone who'd actually worked as a psychiatrist there told me that it was a mixture of things. It was the fact I was involved in the women's movement and the fact that they thought I was homosexual. And in those days, homosexuality was still listed as a mental illness in the DSM, I think it was three at that stage which is the sort of psychiatrist diagnostic manual. They didn't think that a homosexual psychiatrist was a goer. But at the time, I thought, no, I'm not I'm not going to give in there. I'm going to apply for an interview. And I know I won't get it, but I'll do my best. So they were a bit shocked that I actually applied because they thought it would be easy. And one of them said, we can organise a job for you at another hospital if you like. I said, no, no. I'll apply and then work work out what I'll do after that. While I was sitting there thinking, well, I'm jobless now and I'm in the middle of a postgraduate course, what am I going to do? And I got a phone call and it was from um, a woman psychiatrist who was working, and I will name this hospital, who was working at the Repatriation General Hospital in Heidelberg. And she said, we know you, we know that you're good. We'd like you to come and work as our Senior Psychiatric Registrar. So I said, fine, okay, I'll do that. And so I worked there for two years, and I have to say, it was a fantastic hospital. At the time, it was just becoming a community hospital, so we got people from the area as well, but it was still also a veterans hospital. So I did the rest of my training there. But by the end of that, I thought, I think psychiatry is a bit too limiting. I want to be out in the community seen people with a whole lot more sort of varied issues and problems and conditions. So by then I was volunteering at the Women's Health Collective and one of the other doctors who was there worked at a community health centre in the inner suburbs and she said, why don't you come and work for us? So I said, but I've never done any general practice. Doesn't matter. You'll, You'll be fine. Come and have a chat to us and have a look around the place on Monday. So I turned up on Monday to have a look around the place, etc. had a talk to the doctors and some of the nurses there. And, and uh, at the end of that, one of the doctors said to me, OK, well, that's your room and um, <laughs> this is your next patient. And I said, what you mean I'm supposed to be working now? And he said, oh, yes, you're, you're fine, you'll be fine. And I said, I haven't even got a stethoscope with me. He said, oh, there's one in there. So, so that was the start of my career in community health. And um, I retired from community health um, in about eight, eight years ago, a long time. I did have a couple of breaks. I did some research and I did some policy work, etc. But yes, community health was where I was at. And I have to say it was the best job I've ever had. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I enjoyed every minute of it. Even when it was stressful and because we were working in the inner suburbs, we were working with people in the high-rise, with asylum seekers and refugees, with people with mental health and drug and alcohol issues, other much older migrant communities, Going way back, I can remember actually some of the first people that I saw were Holocaust survivors. And then there were Vietnamese refugees who spoke French because they'd come out after the French Indo Chinese War in the early 50s. So, um, it just was a, a whole stream of, of newly arrived groups. And, um, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that very much. So even though it was a terrible experience for me to feel that I'd lost the job I really wanted to do because of those reasons. It actually turned out to be one of the best things that happened to me because I got a job I liked even more and a career that I really appreciated. I I remember when it happened, I couldn't tell you what date it was, Um, but I remember thinking that's about time, because it really, although, although lesbians were harassed, and there's no doubt about it, I mean, I can remember being stopped by police on a number of occasions and um, one of them I particularly remember after a meeting at the Women's Health Collective when I was sitting in my car having a chat with a a psychiatrist that I'd been a student with and we were just having a chat um, because we hadn't seen each other for ages and police came and wondered what we were doing in the car Um, and we were just having a chat but we had to get out and go through all these these questions and explain you know who we were and what we were doing etc And I also remember, it's one reason why I have difficulty with the the term queer, because at my age, and a lot of my friends of a a similar age, were called queer. We were shouted at, we were spat at, and called queer. And it's really difficult to sort of feel that that's a thing I want to claim. But I can understand particularly why, why a lot of young people who might not have experienced that feel that that's, you know, that's an all-encompassing thing that they want to, you know, they want ownership of. But yes, I mean, women had been charged by police for kissing in the street during a demonstration, but in the main, most of those charges were sort of just dropped. But men, and I knew a number of them, went to jail, lost their jobs, relationships broke up because one or other were outed, and it was a terribly difficult time, an awful time, So I can, you know, I certainly recall us all being very pleased that that had happened, and it was about time. It was just a ridiculous thing to have on the books when there were really bad crimes going on. I remember seeing my first case of sarcoma when i was working in community health and aids hadn't been identified then and we knew it was and i got other doctors to come and have a look at it because they'd seen a couple as well um and we'd sent people off to the dermatology clinic at the nearest public hospital because we didn't we hadn't seen anything like it and it wasn't all that long after that that hiv aids was sort of identified and Almost until I retired, I was still seeing people with AIDS, both both male and female, but predominantly male. Preventative medication had come in by then. We had good relationships with the sexual health clinic and a number of other clinics that were specifically sort of HIV-focused. And uh, a number of the people I'd seen had been diagnosed very early on and were still alive. But I also remember I lost some very dear friends as well. And, uh, you can't forget that. That was, um, that was not an easy time for, for people at all. It's still happening, but, the prognosis is much, much better. If you're living in an advanced economy like Australia, but it's still rife in developing nations, and in particular in, in nations where it's still seen as, you know, an act of sin really. There's much more work still to be done. Because it's it's like the same thing has been happening for centuries really. I mean, people with typhoid, people with T B, people with smallpox. The plague, you know, have all been treated as if they've sort of been the work of the devil and AIDS in a sense was not different from that. It's that sort of sense of contamination. These people are contaminated and therefore should not really be part of society. A gay man once told me that there were more lesbians actually assisting, and some straight women as well, assisting men, gay men with AIDS than there were men. Because a lot of men were, in fact, um, you know, partners were also positive. Um, So there were a lot of gay men who weren't well at the time and who were really very frightened about what might be happening to them. I think the the other thing apart from AIDS was we all got together later on as a group and the Australian Lesbian Medical Association was formed. And I was part of that um, for a, a number of years. We had annual conferences and um, became also involved with with the UN in relation to the sort of rights of um, rights of gay men and lesbians. yes. Yeah. there was in in the 70s and 80s um, a phenomenon we used to talk about called the another dead lesbian syndrome and it was when it, um, the media started to actually produce TV shows or there were films um, that actually had gay males and later on lesbians the first I mean the first um, Uh, The first one I can remember where there were gay males was Number 96, um, the television series, which went for quite a long time. Um, But a little bit later on, lesbians started to appear. But whenever they did, they always ended up dying. They either committed suicide or were murdered or died of some fatal illness. An example of that, there was one series where the lesbian actually was, I can't even remember the name of it, but she was relatively ordinary. There'd been some complaints about there being a lesbian in it and they ended up just killing her off by having her murdered. And it's only relatively recently, um, and I think, I do think the women's movement and the gay liberation movement had a lot to do with it. That we've started to see films, films with lesbians in them. Uh, For instance, I think one of my most favourite films is the one Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I mean, it wasn't just a brilliant subject with brilliant acting, but it was just so beautifully filmed about um, a, a beautiful a beautiful time um, for those women, uh, even though it has a bit of a sad ending, it's it's not really a sad film at all. It was just so beautifully done. And there are quite a lot of films like that around now. And there was a series, I think on SBS, was set in Glasgow, uh, uh, all about groups of, of lesbians uh, and their relationships, etc. Some of it quite sad, some of it funny. but. They're much more sort of realistic now about real lives and uh, they're not killed off anywhere near as much as they were in those days. The another dead lesbian syndrome was a, a sort of real phenomenon and women used to go around saying, oh, don't bother watching that, it's another dead lesbian. love (laughs) Uh, um, uh, well yes i can talk about love um and yes i am in a very long-term relationship at the moment but i think one of the things i'd like to say about about love is that i think on the one hand love is actually more important than relationships if there are people that you love and who love you Whether you're in a relationship or not, that's still an incredibly important part and it's one of the ways I think that lesbians actually have over centuries survived. If you go back, you know, in earlier centuries, women have been living together and working together over centuries, they may not have had a sexual relationship, they may not have had what might be now called sexual literacy in terms of a sexual relationship. Um, but they loved each other, um, and they lived for each other and, uh, and often supported each other in large groups and had salons, wrote together, painted together, did many things together. Um, but as Queen Victoria said, they didn't exist. So I think, you know, we, we often say, oh, and there are lots of books written about this, oh, so and so and so and so, we're in, a, we're in a lesbian relationship. Well, they may well have been, but they may never have had a sexual relationship. But I, I do believe in the in the primacy of women loving each other, whether there's a sexual relationship involved or not. When I was younger, there were many many years where I I didn't have a sexual relationship because I didn't know anyone who might be interested. You know, you have to you have to know. I knew what I was. I knew I'd never I'd never be married. And at that stage, I'd never have children either. I mean, you know, how could you in those days? Um, but I thought, you know, I'm going to live a life. I'll have all kinds of other things. I'll have very close friends. My work, I'll have culture, all sorts of things. But it was working, walking through the door of the Women's Centre that opened up a whole new world for me, really. I think things have improved, but I think there's still a long way to go. We all can still be confronted by by hate. And I think there are ways in which we should all come together, many diverse populations, many minorities. I think it's very important for our community to be involved with asylum seekers and refugees, with Indigenous people, with people from minority groups and particularly from minority groups because there are an awful lot there who don't have a voice about who they feel they are and we can be supportive and try and understand their positions. So I think, say for instance, it's important for us to be involved in trying to save the planet really, in trying to do something about climate change, in trying to do something about not having any more wars. There are a whole lot of ways And in the past, that's what we've done, except we've often done it silently, without anyone knowing who we were. I mean, my mother told me the story about... Before she married my father, she was in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. And in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, there were many single... Well, they were all single women, but a lot of them, she said, were lesbians. They had relationships with each other, etc. And she said, you know, they were... And neighbours, you know, they were just like the people in the street and in the shops, etc. None of them actually ever said, I am a lesbian, because they would have been discharged dishonourably. But they were there doing their thing, and, you know, they've always done that. I mean, years later, particularly once the ALMA, the Australian Lesbian Medical Association, sort of got together, a lot of us sort of discovered, oh, yes, we were all lesbians, actually, but we didn't know it. No, we didn't know that the other was, yeah. My mother was always very welcoming of the women that I brought home to visit. Um, and al- although she didn't necessarily sort of talk about it, in sort of overt terms she knew what was going on but she always supported what i wanted to do and her view was because she'd had a tough life she grew up in the depression she left school at 13 because she had to go out and work my grandfather had been in the first world war an anzac and on the western front and he'd been in the field ambulance and had a shocking case of post-traumatic stress i mean i realize that now he didn't drink. He didn't. He wasn't violent or anything. But he gambled, and so money was a real issue there. So my mother had had a very hard life. So had my grandmother. But they both had this view that you lived for the day. You lived in the moment. You did what you could. You made the best of everything that you could. And um, and you know she was just such a lovely woman. And she lived to 95 and was involved in all sorts of organisations and groups in the country town. Very well-loved person, but she just had this vibrancy about her and a belief in, I've got one brother, her belief in us. We would make decent choices and that we would do things which we thought were worthwhile and made us happy. And they did everything they could because they were quite poor, to actually ensure that we did get to, un- to university. And fortunately, there were Commonwealth scholarships at the time, so I could go to university. I think I'd like to think that I was, I was continuing on my grandmother's and my mother's philosophy of life, really. They just taught me, and this includes my father as well, I have to say, they just taught me that you had to be open to all kinds of ideas. Um, Like, for instance, it was after the war, and I was still at school, that my parents decided that the Colombo Plan was starting, that they would take people, students from the Colombo Plan who were coming to Melbourne to study, they would take them for holidays. So we we had people from South Africa, from Zambia, which had just become independent, India, Israel, New Guinea and Japan, which was interesting because it wasn't after, lot, that long after the war and people had still had some relative Jap- anti-Japanese feelings. But my father said, no, these, these students had nothing to do with the war. So we've got to get to know them and accept them and be, be friends, basically. So we had lots of Japanese students staying at, um, at our house. Um, you know, for three and six months at a time, and it was very interesting because it's a small community, thought to be relatively conservative. But people started saying, "We want a bit of this. Can you send them up to us for you know a month or so? Can we have some?" And so that's continued on. There's been an exchange of, of students between schools, and schools uh, students from our town went to Japan uh, for a term and things like that. So that. That kind of gave me an insight into, you know, being able to work with people from really diverse backgrounds and get to know them. And I think that that's an important thing to have to be able to to be able to do that. And I also think her views about living for the moment and doing the best of the day in front of you that certainly helped me during lockdown. I have to say.
0: This podcast has been produced by Shireen Clough, editing and original music by Amy Chapman, interviews conducted by Shireen Clough and Amalie O'Hara. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or lifeline 13 11, 14, Kids Helpline one eight hundred double five. 1800